Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. My guest today is Andrea Dalzell. Andrea is a registered nurse, healthcare advocate, disability rights influencer, and most importantly, a survivor. Andrea is the first registered nurse in a wheelchair in New York State. So she's known as the seated nurse. Thanks to her diverse experience, Andrea has been able to devote her career to helping others with disabilities live healthier lives, whether they be seated or able-bodied. Disability is not a lack of capability. And here's Andrea to absolutely prove it to the world. I don't know where to start exactly, Andrea, except that you are an incredibly brave woman. And there's a couple of quotes that I'm going to throw before we then have you speak and meet the world here on Breaking Brave. Disability is not a lack of capability. You are the first registered nurse in a wheelchair in New York State. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, there are only 20 nurses in wheelchairs in all of the United States. Am I right? Maybe even a little bit less at this point. Yeah. Okay. So welcome to Breaking Brave. And <laughs> and and here we go. Hi. I want to hear about Andrea when you were five years old. So at five years old, let's start there as the story and how you've ended up in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Yeah. So at five years old, I was... Let's start a little bit before five, before five years old. Yeah. Like, you know, I was born to immigrant parents, first generation immigrant parents. They came to the United States from South America. Uh, My parents, my dad worked in finance and my mom worked in interior design. Uh, And then they had me. They got married. They had me. (laughs) I am the first for my mom. So, you know, immigrant parent, immigrant person in in the United States with a child, everything is going great for my parents. They're living their American dream. And then five years down the road, five years old at that point, uh, I get diagnosed with something called transverse myelitis. And it's a neurological disorder that affects the spinal cord. Uh, they don't know what it stems from. There's so many different types of, you know, stories or or ideas of what it could have stemmed from, but there's no clear circuit. Transverse myelitis doesn't have a clear path. It can affect you at any given point in the lifespan in any different type of way. So it's closely related to like MS, uh, lupus in that family. So my parents didn't know what to do. And the only thing that they could do is work and and, and provide uh, a stable environment for me to be able to thrive in as someone who would have a disability. And I can tell you that my parents are the strongest people that I know because to be in a country without your own family and then also be facing a diagnosis with a child um, and not knowing what this world will look like for this child being that they already know how hard it is to pack up and move from a different country and now face this. It's like, you know, I've already been set up to understand work and understand putting your best foot forward because if not, like failure is not the option. So right. at five years old, this is a diagnosis. It's like, okay, my parents are like, all right this is what we have to work with. What are we going to do? And and they did what they needed to, to raise me as this rebel <laughs> of a child who didn't take anyone else's no for an answer unless I was satisfied with that. <laughs> That's a lot of what I didn't know, actually, Andrea, because I didn't realize that your parents were immigrants from South America. Yeah. What, what country, if I can ask? Guyana, Georgetown, Guyana. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. And as a five-year-old, I mean, maybe you don't remember, but did did things start to hurt? Did things start not to work? How did it come to be diagnosed as transverse myelitis? Yeah. So I just woke up one morning. I was playing around with my dad 
my dad like used to pick me up and like drop me onto the bed so that, you know, you bounce or, you know, kids jump all over the bed. So I was already playing around with my dad. My dad at the time used to work night shift. So the time for me to play around with him was early in the morning when he got home and picked me up and he like dropped me on the bed. And as he dropped me on the bed, I felt like all the bones in my body had broken. It was like almost instantaneously where I felt like I had broke. Uh, And I can almost remember like my mom saying, you're playing around, like, you know, stop playing around. You're fine. And like trying to like check me out and make sure that I was, my dad thought like he did break something and they're all like trying to check me out. And then my mom was like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm going to the hair salon. And she thought I was playing around and just wanted to go with her as she was leaving. And I took a couple steps towards her and then collapsed on the ground. So that's when my parents knew something was like really, really wrong. They rushed me to the ER. I went through the rounds and rounds of testing. It took two weeks to get the diagnosis. Uh, at the time, this is back in the, in the early nine, 90s. So therefore, there wasn't a lot of information out there. It was just, you know, we, what we can do is send you to rehab. So I went to rehab for about eight months as a child um, and locked away almost, I want to say, from my parents and from like the outside world because they're so focused on the cure. How do we cure your child and give your child back to you? And that's the thought process around anyone getting a new diagnosis is trying to find the cure versus also trying to understand how to live uh, with the quality of life that you have. And my parents were often among you know, the doctors talking about, well, she needs to be able to walk. And I do remember, well, she doesn't need to walk. My dad will say she doesn't need to walk. She just needs to be strong enough to push her chair. She needs to be strong enough to be able to roll around the block. So we should be teaching her how to roll around the block too. Like, and and that was definitely a different perspective from day one with my parents. Whereas I used to hear the doctor saying she has to be able to do this. And it was more related to my disability. And my dad Mm -hmm. or my parents will say, no, she needs to also be able to know how to do this. And we need to figure out how do we get her here. (laughs) Visionary. Yeah. When they first diagnosed you and you're five years old, Andrea, was this this is just going to decline until she eventually gets to a wheelchair. Is that Was that a given? It just was a question of how long it was going to take you to get to that point. Right. So instantaneously in rehab, I was using a wheelchair on and off until I got braces, crutches, used crutches on and off. But there was always the linger of a re- relapse or if it would be something called like a one-time deal. We didn't know what would happen. And then also... Um, progression, if if I would be progressive and we wouldn't know what that would look like until time passed. So thankfully, I didn't have progressive, but I did have relapse due to all of the surgeries triggering. Um, because you sit down in a wheelchair or because you're using braces, your body f- mechanics tend to change. So using crutches, I would lean more to one side, put more pressure on one side, which meant like I would need to have surgeries because certain things would get tight. They need to relax the area, anything and everything. And it just multiple, multiple, multiple times led to then becoming a full-time wheelchair user by the time I was 12. How was that for you? You're going to school, you're in a wheelchair. What what was that experience like for you, Andrea? You know, school was hard, not because school was hard. <laughs> school was hard because at the time, and again, I can I can really pinpoint it to the time and the era that we were in and still kind of dabble into. Schools like to separate kids that are different. Schools like to, or not just schools in general, I should say human persons love to be able to throw perception onto what they believe a person can or can't do based on a diagnosis or how they are perceived visibly. Because my wheelchair is the first thing that a lot of people saw, they automatically thought they knew my ability or knew my capability. And those two things are not, they're not synonymous with each other. My wheelchair does not equal 
mute, deaf, anything of the sort, right? It's just I use a, a mobility device until you speak to me and then understand where I'm at. So as a kid, I'm well-spoken. My parents are well-spoken. I've been given this, you know, great start off in terms of my mom being very like stringent on education, my parents being very stringent on education, understanding that very early on. So school wasn't hard. Perception was hard. Having to always advocate for myself as a kid, like I didn't want to do something, but they would tell me I had to do it because it's their rules and protocols for someone who has an IEP, an individualized education plan, or if they have a known disability. And I would fight for it. Like I didn't want to go on the yellow school bus. I wanted to take the regular bus with my friends, but societal obstructions will say, well, that might be dangerous for her to do on her own. So let's not do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being pulled out of class early for whatever reason, whether it because I need an extra five minutes to go to the bathroom or if I need to go catch the bus at the end of the day, there was always a reason I was being pulled out from general population or general ed to deal with whatever protocol they had in place for disability. And mm. there's that bias that then gets turned over to the students that are around you. Oh, why does she get to leave early? Why does she get to do this? And now you're combating stigmatism, not only from adults, but now you're combating stigmatism from your peers. And I think that was the hardest part of growing up and, and being in absorbed in education that necessarily wasn't for me. And it's would that be described as ableism, where you're basically being separated? You're on that side and the able-bodied students are on that side. Oh, 100%. I mean, give or take the fact that, you know, you may have lines that you have to abide by and these lines cannot be broken because of business structure. But then again, how does that implicate the student that's going through it and, and their livelihood throughout the, their, their lifespan? I think when we separate students and we don't actually think about the whole broader picture, or even when we are inclusive of students and we're not totally inclusive and in thinking about how they're even getting around the classroom or how they're going to be going with their group, we tend to be ableist. I can be ableist sometimes, even with a disability, not thinking about how my disability and what my needs are may be different from someone else sometimes, and I don't clearly think it through. But when we're in education, when we're supposed to be setting this foundation, is when we should be very clear about how ableism affects a student and how we need to avoid it and make sure that it doesn't happen. And that didn't happen for me, unfortunately, but it also still doesn't happen to this day in New York City schools. So, yeah. And did you have friends, Andrea? Yes. You know, thankfully, I had a lot of friends growing up. Good. I did. Good. And I think that was because I was the rebel. <laughs> <laughs> and your mom describes you in some video that I've watched of your mom speaking about you is... You just moved all the time yeah. between basically zero and five until you were afflicted with this, but just could, you had that indomitable spirit and it feels to me as if it got stronger. Your parents advocating for you, you advocating for yourself. When did becoming a nurse start to enter your field division? I mean, I understand you were taking a lot of science, STEM classes, biology, a lot of things. When did the nursing profession call your name? In college, when I realized that at first I wanted to be a doctor, I said, I'm going to become a neuroscientist. I'm going to figure out how to cure pain. Pain mm -hmm. is like, you know, some the biggest thing that no one can really cure. And we all have different ways of dealing with pain. And I had gone through so much of it as a kid that I said that I'm going to find this cure and, you know, wishful thinking. But in auditing medical school classes, the medical model and its approach to human ailment is that if you have a diagnosis, that's your diagnosis. Like forget your name, forget what your favorite color is, forget that you live in a certain borough and you love to eat a certain food. You're a diagnosis. 
we need to treat the diagnosis. If the diagnosis is doing something different, then we need to figure out why it's doing something different, but you're the diagnosis. And I know that I still remember the day the doctor walked into the room and told my parents, she will never walk again. And I remember like hearing that and saying, okay, but I have, you gave me a wheelchair. So what does it matter if I walk? And I was naive at the moment and thinking like, well, walking's overrated. Like I didn't realize that it was going to be such an impact on Mm -hmm. my life. Like I had wheels, I've been getting around fine. Like I didn't see what the issue was, but I do remember hearing like she will never walk again and not, and now in auditing these medical school classes, I never wanted to tell someone that they would never be able to do something again, understanding that technology was in a boom. This is now like the 2000s. I'm like 2013, 14, 15. I've already gotten through college. Technology is booming. We Every morning we open up and there's something new happening. And there I am. If I become a doctor, I'm going to be telling someone that they would never be able to do something again based on a diagnosis. I was like, there's no way. And it was one of my own nurses that turned to me and was like, well, have you ever thought about being a nurse? And of course, I'm like, no. Representation doesn't show me nurses in chairs. When you watch TV, you watch all... My biggest show as a kid was ER. (laughs) So imagine I live half of my life as a patient in and out of a hospital system, but my favorite show is ER. And then it was Grey's Anatomy and, and Scrubs and all of the hospital medical dramas on TV. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I've never seen a nurse in a wheelchair. I've never seen a nurse on in a book or or even spoken about on TV. Like representation isn't there. So no, I'm not going to be a nurse. And then I sat on it for over a year. I actually spoke to one of the nursing professors before I even applied to get into school saying, can a person in a wheelchair be a nurse? And she was like, well, I'm not sure you would have to figure that out for yourself before applying to the program. And I was like, okay, I applied to take my entrance exam for nursing a week, two days before the deadline of the exam. And I rolled into the testing office and and she's like, well, I'm doing accommodations right now. Do you need accommodations? If not, you have to wait until the next go around. And accommodations for me was I used to get extra test time because I have bad anxiety. And she was like, well, I'm doing testing accommodations now. Give me your paperwork. So I gave her the paperwork and I got in. I was able to take the test in two days. I didn't study a lick, nothing, okay? I was like going in with with a blessing, a prayer, and knowing that I had done so well in all of my previous studies that something should come up from this. Yeah. (laughs) And I take the test. I score very high in terms of the school, the way it is. it's, It's based on a curve. So the higher you score the more competitive your application is to apply. So I scored very well and my grades were great. And then I I applied. I didn't apply. I waited a year, a year. It was almost a year and an hour to the day that the application was due for nursing school. And that was why, if I can interrupt you, why did you wait a year? You wanted to be sure you really wanted this? I don't think it was intentional. I think I was finishing off my my neuroscience degree, my biology degree, and trying to figure out what next. I did that audit. I, I applied for this LNN, the pre-LNN exam. I had the score. And then just subconsciously not knowing and not understanding what could be that next step. I had no idea. I had to just take a leap of faith and... I had all the paperwork together. I submitted it to the to the like hour on the hour of that application being due, and then waited two weeks. Opened up this email that says, "Congratulations, you've been accepted into the nursing program. You start in two weeks. Your orientation program is is on this day." And I'm sitting there looking at the email like, "What did I do? <laughs> and what am I going to get myself into?" What an incredible story. I have some notes up here about your orientation program. And can you tell us that story about when you got into, arrived at the orientation program and how that went? Yeah. So 
time comes for me to meet my cohort and and it's a mandatory orientation. Now, remember, my school, my nursing school was based on grade and merit, not on interview. So no one knew that I was in a wheelchair. I just rolled in that morning and all eyes were on me. I was the elephant in the room. I thought it was just because it was pretty. Nope. I thought it was because, right? <laughs> it wasn't it. You know, the wheels definitely caught some attention. And and, the, and, and I want to say this narrative because maybe it's the first time I'm saying it, but I've said this story a couple of times, but I don't hold the professors at fault. I hold perception and, and representation at fault. I say that because these professors came up to me, they asked me my name and then went away from me then came back and said, we need to speak to you outside. And then they brought me outside the classroom and they said, we don't know if you can be a nurse. And I'm looking at them like, okay, like, what do you mean you don't know if I can be a nurse? Like, isn't there an ADA law, the Americans with Disabilities Act? Like, what what are you saying to me right now? You accepted me. And this is a mandatory orientation. And they're like, well, you can leave the orientation and we'll get back to you uh, about what our part, our hospital affiliates say, and you know, we'll we'll figure it out. And I had just finished my run, or was finishing up my run as Miss Wiltshire, New York, two thousand fifteen. So I was already an advocate. I already had an idea of what couldn't be done or what should be done. So right after, I said to them, like, I'll stay for the orientation, and then we can talk afterward. So I stayed for the orientation and I didn't talk to them afterward. I went straight to my student services department and went to the diversity office. And I said, I've already been accepted. If you're telling me that they're going to unaccept me, then we have a problem. And that was my first, like, I don't want to hear what anyone else has to say about me. I've been accepted already. Please don't give me a hard time for this. Well, they still gave me a hard time, but, you know, it was just... I got through that orientation process, but then it became having to prove myself not only as a student, but as someone with a disability in a field that's not necessarily marked for someone who has a disability to be able to take care of someone else. So even the diversity office was giving you a hard time about this? They didn't give me so much the hard time as much as ask me the questions as if I was already a nurse. And again, hindsight is twenty twenty. So at that moment, I didn't know, you know, I'm trying to come up with all the things that I could do and say that I can do and, and push myself to be able to do. And then also be like, well, don't ask me that because I don't know. I've never mm-hmm. been a nurse before, but they also mm-hmm. wanted to know like what accommodations I would need. And it's very hard to ask someone what accommodations they're going to need if they've never done something before. They have Impossible. to, you have to see it. You have to, you have to feel it. You have to understand what the movements would be and understand why you're doing something in order to say, okay, well, I may need this accommodation. I had no idea what I was getting into. And then to be asked what accommodations I would need and the verbiage be so different. Like I say, um, you may be able to stand for 12 hours but I can sit for 12 hours and I don't think there's much of a difference between you standing and me sitting versus a height difference. And like, you know, and, and that's where the language really became finicky and not understanding how to accept disability in an aspect that's never been seen before. How long was school, Andrea? How long was nursing school for you? So I did my associate's degree in, in 18 months. And then that's two, about two years. And then I finished yeah. my uh, baccalaureate in a year. So that's three years for nursing school completed. And then I just finished up my master's. So um, five and a half years total for nursing. How was it? It was a journey. And it still is a journey. It was a journey because at the beginning, when I was just a student, I wasn't allowed to be just a student. I had to be the person with a disability that thought 15, 30, 50 feet ahead of me. I had to always be thinking about when the ball will drop, how the ball could drop, how can I fix the ball if the ball drops? Like, you know, you have to kind of think about all the angles because I didn't want my disability to be an excuse that someone Mm -hmm. can use against me. And I felt like I had to be able to open the door for someone else. Like, don't allow my disability to be able to close the door. Like I have to show that I can do it that way. Somebody else would at least be able to get the chance. 
And and that was the hard part. That's a lot of stress for you, oh, Andrea. Oh, it was. I mean, always being on this hyper alert kind of stage of, well, what about this room? And what am I walking, not walking? What am oh, yeah. I rolling into? What am I getting into? Yeah. And what could be the potential pitfalls for me there? Uh, uh, uh. It yeah. makes it very hard for you to have a focus on the education you're receiving, as well as a focus on what the needs are about to be when you don't really even know what the needs are going to be. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. So it was always in in prep mode, standby mode, ready for, you know, any have to be able to answer the questions as well as being a student. Right. So I wasn't like the perfect student. I didn't get like straight A's, but I was working my butt off to be able to maintain the lowest grade you can get in nursing school is a B. So you have to not know that that's the lowest grade you can get. You cannot get lower than a B. And this is all nursing schools across the nation. You cannot get a C. The lowest grade you get is a B. It's an 84. You have to be able to maintain that 84 throughout nursing school. If not, you're cut. You can only fail one class. You can only drop one class. So there is no, it's, it's a lot of pressure to just be a student. So now add on disability, add on perception, add on those biases that I'm now having to navigate through. And then even being in clinical practice where I'm going into the hospital setting as a student and nurses saying, oh, she won't be able to do that job. Nurse managers from those units saying, oh, we don't think this is good for you or your infection control risk or whatever the problem may be that they saw, they would throw it onto me. We don't think you can. And it was always either my... I had a couple of preceptors, my nursing preceptors that would stand up for me and be like, she can very much do this. Or it would be my peers that would be like, we've seen her do this and she can do this. Thankfully, I had a great cohort. And, you know, or it would be myself just trying to stay under the radar, not cause too many ruffles. Let me help where I can, you know, and, and just leave me alone so that you don't throw your biases at me because I have a test coming up. <laughs> like, I don't need mm-hmm. to worry about this anymore. Andrea, can, I've read I've read a couple of stories, a number of stories, but can you tell us a story about oh other nurse practitioners and or doctors saying to you, well, we're going to need to go and get somebody else to help us to move this patient or sit this patient upright or whatever you were doing, and you're like, no. I can do it, but they didn't believe you. Is there is there something? I'm sure there's lots, but <laughs> is there one you could share with us? Because I just I just think that it just makes it so much richer if our audience can understand it from the perspective of storytelling. Yeah. So um, I had a patient one evening. I was working in a hospital at this point. I had a patient one evening. Uh, I had excused myself. I was going to go use the restroom when I came, and the nurse's aide in the hallway looks to me and she says, "Well, do you need help?" And I looked back at her and I was like, to use the bathroom? No, I'm fine. Like, I'm okay. But again, there's that perception. You see somebody in a wheelchair, they may need help. And I'm I'm grateful for that. But I'm like, no, I'm fine. I go and I come back and she she's looking. I see the same one that just asked me if I needed help. And she's looking in the hallway and I'm like, are you okay? She's like, well, I need help to pull someone up in bed. I was like, well, I can help you. And she's like, no, 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 he's heavy. It's okay. Like, I need someone that can, like, really, like, help. I was like, well, how heavy is the patient? Like, are we talking over 300 pounds? And you should do a four-person assist. If it's less than that, we can do two. It's fine. And she's like, no, 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 you need to be tall. You need to be, like, standing is what she meant. And mm-hmm. I was like, let me show you a trick. <laughs> so we go in the room. And, of course, this patient is is able and talking to me. And I'm like, I'm going to put your bed where your head feels like it's going to hit the floor. It's going to be a little bit backwards, but you're going to be okay. And they're like, okay, yeah, no problem. So I put the bed in what's known as Trendelenburg. It's when your head is actually uh, lower than your feet. So your feet are up in the air, your head is down. And I'm like, okay, turn the patient, change the sheets. When we change the sheets, we're going to use the new sheets to pull him up in bed. So we turned him. And as his head is now lower than his feet, it's easier to pull him up in the bed. And I look at her and I, and I say to her, I was like, I was like, you know, body mechanics work in my favor because I lock myself in place and I don't necessarily have to use any real like stomach muscle, hip muscles to pull up in bed. I just got to use upper body strength. So and she just looked at me like, wait a minute, you just helped me pull this person up in bed and showed me a better body technique so that I'm not hurting my back. And I'm like, 
hey, it comes with the job. <laughs> and then I just rolled out of the room like it was nothing. And But I know in that moment, I changed her perception of yeah. me and then whatever she saw of disability ever again. Wow. And let's talk about that for a second, if we can, Andrea. Yeah. How are you staying strong with this upper body? Before we started recording, you and I were chatting about this a little bit. But tell the world, because one of the things, of course, I didn't think of, but one of the things you have to know how to do is CPR. And you've got to be strong. And the story you just told. So how, how do you maintain this strong athletic body? So yeah, um, ever since I was a kid, I was already athletic. I used to do a lot of wheelchair races. And then understanding that nursing school was going to take its toll, being that I was already setting a path forward, I took up boxing so that I can do chest compressions with stamina from the seated position. Uh, Boxing was going to give me the upper body strength. It was going to give me the stamina that I needed to be able to 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 compress chests to compress the chest from the seated position. Like it's not an easy task to be able to do. So if you think about boxing and having to throw body weight, that's what CPR really is, is having to throw your body weight over someone else's chest and be able to push down to compress their heart and beat for them. And and that's what I, I took up. I took up boxing to be able to give me that momentum. I also do want to preface this by saying like, not everyone with a disability can do that. And nursing doesn't always say that I need to be at the bedside and ready to do CPR. Nursing is so multifaceted that you can really be in any any position. You don't need to be at the bedside. You don't need to be in a hospital or a clinic setting. You can be a school nurse. You can you can sit behind case management. You can make decisions in insurance. There's so many different ways. But I wanted to be in a hospital setting. I wanted to be able to give back to my community. Remember, oh, or I didn't say this yet, I've had over 37 surgeries in my life, which means multiple hundreds of of ER, ICU, med surge teams that have seen me, that have helped me. I've seen the way providers and nurses have spoken to my parents as a child and now as an adult. So my give back was to say, I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a nurse at the bedside and be able to meet someone at their most vulnerable time and be able to give back a piece of hope when someone else may be going into that room saying, you may never be able to do something again. So I didn't mind going through the structure of doing boxing to be able to learn CPR so that I can be at the bedside because I saw myself giving back that hope to what could be me, what would have was, was me, that once upon a time was me and I wasn't the person getting that hope back. And there's a fabulous story Andrea, about a stroke patient. Yes. And this stroke patient was giving the nurses, the medical staff, a very hard time. No, I don't want to try. No, I don't want to get out of bed. No, I know, I know, I know. Uh No, I'm just, I'm just in this depressed place and I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. And they asked you to go in and you went in. So maybe you could also share that story with us. Yeah, one of my peers needed help, asked me if I can just go in and grab some vitals while she took care of another patient at that moment. And I said, sure, not a problem. I'll help out. I didn't think anything of it. I rolled in the room. And as soon as I rolled into this person's room, she starts hysterically crying as she saw me. And I thought something was wrong. I was like, okay, she was giving everyone else so much of a hard time. Maybe we just weren't listening to her. I'm thinking something is dreadfully wrong because now she's crying. And I'm asking for, you know, our preceptor to come in the room. I'm asking for nurses, like, go get a nurse or something, like, back up. And as I'm taking her, I'm about to take a blood pressure. I was like, I'm going to take your blood pressure, okay? I just want to see where we're at, what we're working with. And she looks at me and she just stares at me. as Tears are coming down her eyes. And she said, I thought my life was over. In that moment, I knew exactly what she meant. She just got a diagnosis. She's now not able to move half of her body. She doesn't know what life looks like for her outside of those walls and what she's about to enter into. And here she sees me rolling into her room, not being able to use half of my body and still working and still being able to provide service to someone else or an act of kindness. And so her words to me were like, 
you know, I thought my life was over. And I was like, well, your life will be over if you sit in this bed. What's going on? Talk to me. Like, are you okay? Are you hurting? Like, I had to play it off. I wasn't about to let her know that I get it and I'm there with you and I'm going to start crying too. No, you need to get up out of this bed and you need to get to therapy so that you can figure out what your strengths are now and, and utilize them. But that was an impact moment for me. It was one of the moments that I knew that I was on the right path in nursing and knew that, you know, I was going to change lives. Chills. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, you mentioned being Miss Wheelchair New York 2015. Yes. So can you tell us about that? How long has it been going on? Until I started reading about you, I'm like, okay, I didn't know that that wasn't thing. It's a pageant but it's Miss Wheelchair New York I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah. So Miss Wheelchair New York is it's not so much a pageant as a, as much as it is an advocacy uh okay. and awareness. Uh we allow for women who use a wheelchair 100% of the time to create a platform and utilize that platform to impact their community. So at the time I I had no community. I just knew that I was an advocate and I knew that I was advocating for myself. And what I was advocating for was just every reg- everyday, regular life things that should already be in place. And if I'm advocating for myself, there's other people that can benefit from this. So I need to be advocating for more people. And yes, I, I decided to a- apply. We went through the whole, the nominations and then, you know, speech night and crowning. I was crowned Miss Wheelchair in New York 2015. And my motto was life, liberty, and the pursuit of access. To ensure that, you know, when we say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we're actually saying that happiness and life and liberty can be granted to someone via accessibility. (laughs) No kidding, you won. Oh my goodness, (laughs) no kidding, you won. And you've also started a charity. Can we talk about that and and what's it for and what's it all about so that we can let the world know about this for you? Because we do have a worldwide audience, so the whole world will be hearing about your charity. Oh, wow. So, yes, I have the seated position, which is a stem off of myself, the seated nurse. What I did was... You know, I'm a nurse and and that's the field that I wanted to be in. But the seated position really encompasses STEM programs. So science, technology, engineering, mathematics, that all encompasses healthcare as well. STEM is one of those, all these programs that aren't necessarily made with accommodations in mind. So when students are trying to figure out STEM in high school or going into higher education, I help provide them with the accessibility that they need or how to circumnavigate anything that would not be normally accommodated so that they can get the education they need to move on and move forward. On the flip side of that, I also have the Access Project, which I am partnered with uh, George Gallego. And it's a fully accessible gym in Harlem, New York, that allows for persons with disabilities to access a gym that has accessible uh, and accommodating machines, as well as having full staff of trainers who understand how to not only use the machines, make the machines accommodating, but also to help persons with disabilities and those who are elderly regain stamina, build strength. And if they wanted to take up boxing, they could take up boxing. <laughs> Which is not easy, I understand. Yes. <laughs> it's a hell of a workout. Okay, so how long have you had your charity, the seated position? So for the last two years. And how can we support you? So right now, the seated position is always looking for for quality accommodation uh, reform checks. So thinking, thinking along the lines of, if you know how to do mathematical problems uh, through AI, artificial intelligence, or, or through voiceover online, or how to accommodate um, STEM programs like chemistry, inorganic, or organic chem outside of a lab, in which case students can talk through the process without having to physically touch chemical 
allows an accommodation setting. So if you, we're always working with different scientists, we're working with different mathematicians, we're working with different program engineers so that students with disabilities um, can get the programs that they need or find accommodation through the classes that they need to be able to gain the education. Um, I want someone or I want your listeners to always think about the fact that an accommodation is not giving someone a leg up. It's not giving someone, you know, a free ride. It's allowing them to have an equal playing field. All I ever wanted throughout my education was to be given an equal playing field to show my brilliance. I had to fight for that part. And people around me think that sometimes when we're giving someone a program to be able to prove that they can do something, that it means that the program's doing it for them. No, the student needs to be able to walk you through it. Student needs to be able to talk and be able to present and to be able to do. And sometimes that's a lot harder than just being able to show you something that you can just do step by step. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to walk through step by step can be a lot more taxing for a student. And I want students to be able to have that open playing field. So if you understand those those programs, you understand that type of technology, we are looking for you because we pair you up with students that are going through those classes in the moment. That way we can figure out how to best support them. That's fabulous. Some schools do not have that access. A lot of schools don't know how to give students that type of access or don't have that type of accommodation. So students fall through the gray area and we don't want that. Never. Good for you. And how long has the Access Project, the gym, been in existence? So the Access Project has been open since 2014. However, the pandemic did knock them out. We lost all three locations at that point in time. I just came on as VP of operations this uh, last year, late last year. And we are in the process of opening up a physical location again up in Harlem. So that will be our fourth location. But yes, the other three locations have since closed. But we will have and we have an online program as well. Great. Fantastic. So a couple more questions. I have Grey's Anatomy down here, and you've already mentioned it, saying I watched it, I was a fan when I was a kid. Yes. Did you ever have a role on Grey's Anatomy, or was there a thought that you might have a role? On? How, how does this potentially fit into your life? Oh, I never had a role on Grey's Anatomy. I wish, Shonda Rhimes, you hear me now. <laughs> like... <laughs> I've never had a role. However, um, a couple of interactions when I was on the Nurse Blake show on YouTube, I had a a meet and greet with, um, her name is Arizona Robbins on uh, Grey's Anatomy, who I love. So uh, we had a meet and greet there. And then Grey's Anatomy did a Thank You Heroes reel uh, during the pandemic. And they honored me as well. I was a part of that reel. And they had that running across ABC um, for some time. So that was very cool. (laughs) And 76, what does the number 76 mean to you, Andrea? That number is a dreadful number. However, I know it is. (laughs) (laughs) That number is dreadful. So right after graduating, or I shouldn't say graduating, right after passing my boards, my licensure for nursing, uh, I started my quest to find a job. And I was particularly looking for clinical work. So anything that was going to take me in front of a patient where I would have one-on-one patient time, patient care, um, patient conversation. Uh, My first job, I was a camp nursing director for a respite camp. But again, that was like mostly behind the scenes, very few interactions with with, uh, campers. And then I went into case management, again, behind the desk. But I had submitted 76, completed 76 interviews for clinical work alone. Not anything that was desk work, not anything that was camp related or school related. This was all like dialysis care hospital care, clinical care, anything I was going to be hands-on with patients, I had completed 76 interviews for. So just interviews. I had submitted over 2,000 plus applications. I had received 76 interviews and I was rejected from every single one of those clinical 76 interviews. Um, I was told and I know someone listening is probably like, why didn't you file a complaint? Why didn't you complain about this? You know, I think at the time I wanted to, 
but I was so gung-ho on proving a point that I was more concerned about getting the job than filing a complaint. I had student loans to pay. I, I have other things I need to worry about. Filing a complaint usually isn't about the person filing a complaint, and the person filing a complaint usually doesn't get their issue necessarily resolved. It resolves the issue for the next person behind them. And again, I wanted to be in that hospital setting more than anything else. So filing complaint was just not feasible at the time. Now, it wasn't your end goal. And when you want something so badly, it's it's showing the tenacity. God bless you. I read for one of these dialysis interviews that you actually went to, when they saw you roll in in your chair, they claimed that the interview actually hadn't been scheduled or there had been some kind of a mistake, which was a complete lie, but as a means of saying, wait a second, no way. We're not even going to put you in a position where you can speak for yourself. We're going to judge you just by your chair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that has happened so many times. I mean, you don't necessarily think you're going to go into an interview and you're going to record your interview because you're going to be discriminated against. And so I didn't record all of my interviews. You, I did start to record like my before interview and after um, on like social media, just so you can see, you know, I would go in extremely happy and then come out and it would be like, I already know that this is not going to work. I've had interviews go so well where they've hyped me up to think that HR was going to call me by like the next day or send me an offer and I would hear nothing and I would call HR and they'd be like, they've heard nothing. And then I'd have to give it up. Or then I would get an email saying, we have decided to move on with another candidate. But there's never an explanation as to why they didn't hire you. And all of my peers that I had just finished school with were getting the the same interviews that I was getting and getting the job and getting the job. And like, I will come in and they're like, oh, yeah, I have an interview for that place tomorrow. Who would you speak with? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's who I'm speaking with, too. And then when they would go in for their interview... I would get, they would call me like 20 minutes later when they're done and say, Andrea, they just offered me the position on the spot. And I would literally run through my questions that I was getting with my other peers. I told you guys I was Miss Wiltshire, New York. So I had a media trainer. I, I spoke to the media trainer about, you know, questions. How do I interview? Can I interview better? Like training to interview. Because I thought at one point it was maybe I'm the worst interviewer in the world. And everyone's telling me there's no way you were just Miss Wilshire, New York. You've been in front of all of this press already. So we know how you speak. There's no way. And I I thought there was something wrong with me. I really did. I thought that I couldn't interview correctly. I thought that maybe it wasn't just a disability. Maybe it was something else because there's no reason why I am not getting the opportunity. But I'm going to call a spade a spade now. It was blatant discrimination. And it was blatant discrimination because of the fact that, again, representation matters. And it wasn't something that someone has ever seen before to be able to say, yes, this can be done. Nursing, for anyone who's listening, is an evidence-based practice, meaning that everything that nurses do comes from evidence. It means that some beforehand, there, there are studies, there's data that shows Yes, no, why something works, why other things don't work. If you're looking at someone with a disability and you're automatically saying their capability is not to be able to stand up, so therefore they can't do CPR, I'm going to ask you about that nurse who is four foot two, who has no disability. How does she reach the top shelf? I'm going to ask you about that nurse who may be a little bit more heavier set, who can't run down the hallway. I'm going to ask you about the nurse who had a motorcycle accident that broke their wrist, but you would never have known that until it's time to do CPR. And they're telling you they can't do CPR because they've had a broken wrist before and they can't put that type of pressure on their wrist. But because my disability is visible, you automatically get to throw that perceived bias onto me. And now I have to prove how to combat that. That's not an equal playing field. So that discrimination was already thrown at me from day one. And to go through 76 rejections today, to this day, I have trauma from rejection because of that. Of course. (laughs) Anybody else would have quit at 20, 50, but 70s. No kidding, you'd have trauma about that. Yeah, rejection is hard, especially when you're facing it in a in a job job market 
where it's flourishing. At the time, the job market was flourishing, right? Everyone in healthcare can get a job and, and everyone wants nurses. And there I was like, why don't you want me? Yeah. And your colleagues are going in the next day and getting the offer on the spot. So, you know, don't right. lie to me. Don't right. lie to me, right. which is what they were obviously doing. Or, or just not understanding how they can best live up to that equal opportunity employment statement that's on the bottom of everybody's business, right? Like, mm-hmm. like yeah, we're an equal opportunity employer. Okay, how do you stand behind that statement? <laughs> okay, I would like to ask you about the pandemic. So how did the pandemic perhaps change this reality of 76 rejections for you? You're in the hub, you're in the hustle and bustle of, of, you know, Brooklyn was home for you. So New York, New York State, a crisis situation with COVID. How did COVID potentially change your trajectory with nursing, Andrea? Yeah, so our governor at the time, Governor Cuomo, put out a call for retired nurses to come out into active service. We were in dire straits in March of 2020. If everybody remembers, New York City came to a grinding halt because of how bad um, the COVID infections had gotten here. And the hospital center started putting out their HR numbers for healthcare staff to be able to to call in and provide whatever time that they could. I saw one hospital's HR number and decided to call, left my information on a voicemail. And then about an hour later, I got a call back saying, can you come in tomorrow and bring all of your credentialing? And I said, okay. So I showed up the next day. I take all my credentialing in and I get issued a temporary work badge and said, to show up the following evening for my orientation. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's it. That was the easiest job ever. And Hello, I'm ex- number 77. Seven, right? I'm here. Like, I'm here. <laughs> like, this was easy. I just got a job. And I, I remember getting back to my car with with my badge, my like my badge in hand. My my face is on this badge. There's, you know, I I have access. And I call my preceptor at the time someone who I would just banter about nursing with, how can I get through certain things? And I'm telling her on the phone that they don't know I'm in a wheelchair yet. And I meant they, like the nurse managers or the the unit nurse doesn't know that I'm in a wheelchair. It's just, I just got through HR. And she's telling me on the phone, she's like, so what's the problem? Like, I'm not understanding why you're so nervous. And well, I just went through 76 rejections. So here I am. I'm not believing that this badge is going to hold true for me. And she says, well, you hold them to that EEOC statement. They gave you something. They can't take it back from you. And it kind of clicked. Just like in nursing school, I was accepted to that nursing program. You can't take it back from me now. You have to tell me why. And I wasn't just going to allow someone to take that badge away from me. Even in the height of the pandemic, everyone is running away from helping and trying to preserve life. And here I am just trying to get the job. I wasn't even considering my life. I'm not considering getting sick. I'm not considering anything else besides the fact that my peers need help. This is opportunity for me to get a job and for me to learn something and, and learn in a capacity that I want to learn at. And that, that was it. I went in the next day. I got orientation. I show up on the unit. I'm thinking that I finally made it. And and the unit manager nurse manager comes up to me and she's like, have you ever worked on a unit before? And I say, yeah, (laughs) like just nonchalantly. Yeah. And they're like, well, we think you may spread COVID to other patients. So we don't know if you can be on the floor. And I said, well, HR didn't have a problem one. And I was like, two, can you show me evidence or anywhere that says that someone who is a mobility device user has a higher percentage of spreading the infection. I was like, I'm so worried about me getting it that I would be wipe. I'm already in the process of thinking of how to wipe this down. I'm not thinking about how I'm going to give it to someone else. And I was like, well, HR didn't have an issue. So you should talk to HR about it. She never came back to me. She never came back to me about it. 
And as far as I know, I never gave anyone COVID. I've never had COVID, knock on wood. So therefore. (laughs) Yeah. Were they worried about the chair? Like the chair is spreading germs. The germs are going to live on the chair. And that I was going to touch the chair without using gloves. And But again, evidence-based practice. So it's just like whatever you think, you know, let's actually be factual about it versus let's taking taking a guess that's not there. So how was it working in New York in the middle of a crisis global pandemic where they had yeah. refrigerated trucks sitting in parking lots with bodies stacked in them? I mean, as Canadians, uh, uh, we were just uh, speechless. How was it for you? It was really hard. I mean, you, we held, I held a, a tight face. I've had moments where I would come home from a 14 hour shift, 15 hour shift and just break. And, and cause you're seeing so much death at a capacity that I guess the best way to say it. So if you watch Monday night football about two weeks ago, everyone knew about DeMar on the field being given CPR in front of the world who's watching this game. Mm-hmm. So American football for, for, for everyone. I oh, know we were right? all watching it. Yeah, we we're all, all watching knew it. that that and, and the impact to know that someone's life is on hold on national television, on, on international television. And you're watching this happen. So now that feeling that you, you got that day or that when you heard that story, maximize that by 3000 and that was covid because you're watching it every minute of every day as well as moving on from calling one code to going to another code and calling another code to then calling a parent to tell a parent or calling a child to tell them that their parent hasn't made it to then coming home to your own family hoping that you don't spread something um to then just mentally trying to take a break and you can't because you're just in the depths of it. And then even to the patients who are alone, they don't have anyone coming in from the outside. There is no one to hold their hand. It's only us. So not only are we taking on our own emotional baggage, we're then taking on our patient's emotional baggage in this dire time where their neighbors or their 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 person who they're sharing a room with may have just coded. And the nurses and the doctors and the respiratory therapists and your and your aides and everyone else, the phlebotomists, we're just working through this. And again, it's not one patient like Damar was one person on the field where everybody was kind of creating this human shield for, for him. This is every other patient that you're seeing, patients that you may have smiled with in the morning and then three hours later you're calling to say that they've passed. Like it is such a heavy burden that healthcare has taken on post COVID and, and during that that initial scream and height. So that's the best parallel that I can give you that that little bit of heart wrench that you felt watching that Monday night football scare mm-hmm. is what healthcare workers are feeling on a, an exponential level at that point in COVID and even in some places in the world today. Every day. Yeah. It feels like healthcare workers would have PTSD around this, Andrea. I mean, seeing so much death and not being able to help enough, save enough, mm-hmm. or even watching the pain of a human being dying without their friends or family being able to come into the hospital to be there with them. Yeah. That's got to be that's got to be a thing, major PTSD for the healthcare profession as a result of this. Oh, it's huge right now. I mean, you know, I, I support I, I support our, our healthcare workers here in the United States and around the world. My voice is with them. If I can ever help in any way, I'm the we're the ones that are like, I'm there, like, how can we do this? But at the same time, just also recognizing that it may not just be healthcare workers. This is everyone and everyone had to go through this. Everyone is still going through this. Everyone is still going through some type of mental struggle that came out of 2020. And it, it takes a lot to be brave enough to say that I've struggled and 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 that other and acknowledge that other people are still struggling and to acknowledge that you know whoever you've lost if you if even if you've lost no one that that time period alone was just very hard and very lonely and dark and now that we've kind of had somewhat of a reemergence 
it's still hard because now you're learning to carry that baggage around in an, in a system that maybe doesn't necessarily remember those first initial weeks when we were just lost. <laughs> Absolutely. Andrea, just because you mentioned the word brave, I'm going to ask the question. What yeah. just shoot from your gut? What does bravery mean to you? Bravery means being able to hold on to your own yes. Uh, I have been a huge advocate of not listening to everyone else's no for someone else. And to be able to hold on to whatever your definition of yes is for yourself. So not letting someone else's no define your own yes. If you feel as though you can do something, even though the world and everything else is telling you no, take that brave step and say yes and 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 push for it and push for it any which way you know how, even when the path hasn't been created yet. And every single other thing has been done, but you've never done it. So you try to do it and stick to your own yes. And that that's what being brave is, is just understanding that you're own yes is more powerful than anyone else's no. I absolutely love that. Thank you. How can the world connect with you, Andrea? You're a speaker, you're an advocate, you're involved in so many things. So here's the shout out to websites and Instagram and Twitter and anything you want to let the world know so that we can support the incredible work that you're doing. Yes. So please feel free to check me out on uh, the Seated Nurse uh, handle. It is on Twitter. It's on Instagram. It's on TikTok. It's on Facebook. You can reach out to the Mic Drop Agency. That is my my direct PR agency. They are fabulous. They get back to you. Or reach out on my website, theseatednurse.com. If you reach out and send an email, my team will be on it and they will definitely make sure that we get in touch. Thank you for the joy of speaking with you, Andrea. I am so inspired and I will always remember this, your answer to what bravery is always. That's going to stay with me always. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, marilynbarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.